Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm very happy to say we have Ian Sample on the show, and we'll be discussing his interesting new book, Massive, The Missing Particle That Sparked the Greatest Hunt in Science. You probably think that everything weighs something. That's what I thought before I read Ian's book. But it turns out that some very, very small things, in fact, most very, very small things, don't weigh anything at all. The curious thing is that when you put these very, very small things, at least some of them, together, they become massive. That is, they gain mass. Scientists don't really understand how this happens. In fact, they've been trying to figure it out for about 50 years, and Ian does a wonderful job of telling the story of how they have conducted the search. The search, that is, for what is called the Higgs boson, which is a particle that is presumed to exist if theoretical physicists are right. Experimental physicists are currently looking for it in a number of places, one of them in Illinois and the other being on the Swiss-French border at CERN. They haven't found it yet, but as Ian tells us, they're still looking. I really enjoyed talking to Ian today. And I think that you'll enjoy the interview. So without further delay, here it is. Hi, Ian. Hi there. Uh, how are you today? Very good, very good. I'm, I'm glad uh, to hear really that today. glad to be talking to you. Sorry, Karen. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say I'm glad to be talking to you. There's a backstory to this. We're talking to Ian Sample today about his terrific new book, Massive, The Missing Particle That Sparked the Greatest Hunt in Science. And the backstory is, is that I've been trying to talk to uh, Ian, for well over a month now, um, as, as he'll probably tell us, uh, they had a little weather in the UK, and then there were the holidays, and so on and so forth. Various things intervened to keep us apart, but now I'm very happy to say that we are together. Together at last, Ian, that's terrific. Um, and thank you for being on the show. I've, I've read the book, and I think it's really a, a terrific contribution to uh, not only uh, what I would call um, uh, scientific journalism, or the journalism of science, but also the history of science. And, you know, this is a history show, and Ian, you've done a terrific job of making what, what is a wonderful uh, story available to a, a large public, and that is the story of this particular moment in the history of physics, a moment we are still in for those of you that follow uh, what's going on with these colliders and things. So we should begin by thanking Ian for writing the book. And I think we should begin the interview by having Ian, if you would, tell us a few words about yourself. Sure. Well, uh, let me think where to start. Um, I'm from Oxfordshire, uh, one of the sort of home counties of the UK. And um, I guess I was um, always pretty interested in in science as a student at school and things like that. And, and through university and university, I um, studied, I studied material science, weirdly enough, which is, as far as I can tell after leaving that course, is basically uh, why anything breaks um, <laughs> and actually how to make stuff, but mostly why anything breaks. So we spent an awful lot of time looking at um, 
why airplanes fall out of the sky and why, um, I don't know, all sorts of um, things go wrong with space shuttles like O-rings freezing and things like that. And it's actually a very sort of practical engineering kind of thing, but it had uh, physics and chemistry and mathematical elements in there. Um, and then uh, after doing science at university for, for a while, I moved into, um, I took a job at a, what I guess in the U.S. would be the equivalent of the American Institute of Physics, so the, the, basically the British Institute of Physics. I'm working on their journals, doing publishing, um, and I found that kind of interesting because it's really broad, and I was working on applied physics journals, so I was sort of dealing with the manuscripts of um, all of these people from all over the world who are writing about, you know, just the huge breadth of hardcore physics, which was good. Um, but eventually, um, actually very shortly, I only did that for a few years and, and found it a bit... Um, bit much of a paper-pushing job, I, I ditched out and came to London to do uh, a PhD, which was on, uh, bizarrely, medical implants. So I'd already had this sort of material science background. And then I moved into uh, the University of London, where they had a really good center for bringing people from all kinds of different backgrounds, so biologists and vets and stem cell scientists and all sorts, and more sort of materials engineering guys like me. Um, to try and develop new kinds of medical implants for people. Um, and then after that, um, or while I was doing that, I got interested in, um, I think I always had this kind of wandering mind where, although I was quite interested in what I was doing at my lab bench, if that was going quite slowly, I would be sort of asking the guy next door what he was doing and then what the next people were doing, what the people in the next door lab were doing. And there's sort of this general sort of uh, nosiness, I suppose, that um, led me to start writing about science for the newspaper at the university there. Um, and then I went to New Scientist for three or four years, um, worked as a reporter there, which was absolutely fantastic. Um, hugely uh, enjoyable and incredibly intellectually vibrant atmosphere. Um, and from there, moved to the Guardian in 2003. So I sort of I, I, I've been in, out, in and out of science education for a while, and then uh, moved sort of firmly over to the journalistic side. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an enviable career, at least so far. It, it sounds really very interesting because you've gone very deep on sub subjects, and then on the other hand, you've uh, served to disseminate uh, information about science to uh, most everyone. That, I, I think that most scientists. Well, maybe I'm speaking out of school here. Um, most scientists probably couldn't do that. I'm not trying to flatter you now, Ian, but come on. That's pretty no, good. I mean, yeah. it, 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 it's one of those, uh, I think everybody has sort of uh, crises at some point in what they're doing with their life, and if they don't, then they're probably not thinking about it enough. But, I mean, I, I certainly uh, feel, and still feel, actually, and one of the reasons was actually in, in, in doing the book, although it probably doesn't go quite as far as to achieve this, but, you know, you can wonder when you're doing journalism is, is, is what the what on earth am I achieving here? Who, who, am I doing anybody any, any good whatsoever? And, um, and I think one thing I miss about um, doing science was that I, uh, you, you, if you're in the right field and you're doing something which isn't obsolete and wasting taxpayers' money, you can feel as if you're doing something useful and you'll be right. Mm -hmm. Whereas um, there is something sort of inherently parasitic about journalism. Um, I mean, th th there is this, I, you know, this, this this nice side, if I can believe it, that it's, it's valuable to disseminate science, um, you know, from the lab to, to people who wouldn't otherwise know about it. I mean, and I'm sure that is important, but I, I feel slightly guilty because 
the, the key reason I do science journalism is so that I can come in every day, pick up the phone to a world expert somewhere, wherever they are in the world, and they will more than likely give me half an hour or so of their time and just download their, their brains to me, and I will learn so much each day and, or just be fascinated each day I come in. Um, but it's a, that's a very selfish reason to do a job, and I just end up sort of having enjoyable conversations all day long for a living, um, but I'm not really contributing much myself. to see my point? Oh, I don't know if you're... I, I, would, I, I agree with you that um, I like to talk to people too, which is why I do this podcast, and I get to talk to all kinds of experts like yourself about things I don't know very much about, and I, I find that endlessly fascinating. I don't know that everybody does. And, um, but, I, but I do think that you do make a contribution. And I was thinking while I read your book, I followed the demise of the superconducting super collider in Texas in mm. the early 90s. And I think if your book would have come out in 1988, that we might have had that thing. And, uh, and, and that, you know, I'm sad every day that I, I know that we almost did. They dug the hole and everything. And, and it, would mm. be, it would be up and running today. But I you know, a, a lot of the problem with these big science projects is that the, the scientists themselves uh, don't get the word out very effectively. I know this is true in the humanities as well. I mean, we are not very good at uh, telling the public what we do. And therefore, when appropriation comes up and they want to know why they should build the superconducting super collider or whether why they should fund a bunch of historians who want to study medieval uh, France or something, you know, they, they don't really know why. And, and we yeah. kind of rely on people like you to tell – uh, all of us, why, why we should be interested in this sort of thing. So I, you know, I would, uh, I think you can go home tonight and feel good about yourself. Okay. <laughs> well, you, you know, it's interesting. You you mentioned the the superconducting supercollider because um, I, I I have a really uneasy feeling that although it's it, it was cancelled uh, for those who don't know, it was cancelled in 1993 under the Clinton administration, and it was essentially in competition with another Texas project um, or another project which is seen as a Texas project, bizarrely, which is the space station. But anyway, I feel that I'm slightly uneasy that the real impact of, of not going ahead with that project and not actually having something to replace it properly um, has yet to really be felt in the U.S. I think that when um, we'll get on to talking about the Tevatron uh, Collider, which is now, since, since CERN went into action, um, the, the Tevatron is now the, the second most powerful particle collider in the world, on the outskirts of Chicago, I think when that closes, and you know, maybe in a few years' time, maybe maybe sooner, um, that is going to be the tricky point, I think. Um, and, and I can't help worrying for the sort of the leadership of the U.S. in in, in particle physics uh, when that happens. Um, anyway, sorry, I just wanted to make that point before I forget it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, th I think you're absolutely right, um, and I hope that they go forward with something like it. I'm I'm a big fan of. Very big science, I, and I, I think most Americans are. I, I don't, I, I don't know, but we rely on people like you to, to kind of convince the people who hold the purse strings that it's a good idea. So anyway, let's move on to a d discussion of um, massive, the missing particle that sparked the greatest hunt in science. Now, I called the book massive. As again, I'm not going to repeat that. But actually, one interesting thing, I'm going to ask you how uh, you came to write it. But I'm going to begin by asking you why it has two titles. It has one sure. in the UK and one in the US. That's right. So in in the UK, the book is called um, the, 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 the book is called Massive um, in in every everywhere it's published. But um, in the UK, the subtitle is The Hunt for the God Particle. And um, I came up with with Massive as a working title, which ended up sticking. And I'm I'm happy with that because Massive, for me, describes um, there's the physics term initially. The the main reason for calling it Massive is that this is a book about how 
the elementary particles at the very sort of first few, few moments of, um, of, the, uh, of the universe became massive. That is, when they became heavy, because at the very beginning of the universe, these elementary particles had no mass at all, and they're all moving around at the speed of light. So there was a reason to call it massive. But you know, the other reasons being that, uh, one, the machines that are being used to find this uh, particle that is, is so entwined with what mass is, uh, the machines are massive. The, the, the amounts of money it costs to build them is huge. The numbers of people involved are huge. I mean, everything about it is was I could see was massive. Even I have to say that the media, um, you know, hype you could say, or the media reaction over not not the machines, but some of the physics, like the you know this phrase, the God particle. And so coming back to your question, why did I call it two different things? In the U.S., it has. Um, you know, a more a more sort of sober title that doesn't have this cringy god particle phrase in the in the subtitle. In the UK, I kept I, I I went with that. Now, I I was reluctant to use the hump for the god particle, even though I, I came up with it. But I was reluctant for for obvious reasons. It's um, physicists, for one, hate the phrase the god particle. It was actually the nickname comes from um, a physicist uh, in the US, a guy called Leon Lederman, who's um, a former director of Fermilab, um, a Nobel Prize winner. He came up with the name in, in 1993. Um, but it's, it's seen as being very cringy. It, it's meaningless. Nobody can read God Particle and actually learn anything from that, that <laughs> name. It doesn't tell you anything. It doesn't tell you. God didn't invent this particle. You know, God didn't discover it. It's, 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 and it's seen as a very sort of lousy um, PR act, you know. And, um, there's something ugly, something very ugly about it. And yeah. I think why, so why did I use it? Because it's going to put so many people off. And I thought, well, it's, it's become part of the story. So you, you know, in all the discussions I had, or most of the discussions I had, I did an awful lot of interviews for the book. Um, I had to talk to people. I'd say, look, what do you make of this phrase, the God particle? Why is it so annoying? Do you think it caused any serious harm? Um, you know, some, some physicists say, well, you know, this, this makes us look like idiots. It makes us look very arrogant. It potentially offends people who are religious. And I think for all of these reasons, it's, it's, an, it's a bad phrase. I don't like it. Um, but I thought, you know, I'm, I, I, was, I felt in the UK I'll go with it and just almost use it as an experiment to see if I get any really bad reactions in the UK to it um, and then have a different subtitle in the US. Um, and it, it was almost a bit of fun just to see what happened if I did use it. Um, so I've yet to really have any huge complaints, but it was, it was more of a just an uh, just just to see what happened if I used it, but it, I had some justification, I think, because you know that's what everybody was calling it, certainly in the media, and it was almost part of a almost tongue in cheek to mm -hmm. use the the god particle phrase there because it's it's so kitschy. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, um, yeah, it was it was it was a bit of a gamble. Yeah. So um, why did why did you decide to write a, a book about um, the hunt for this particular kind of particle. Sure. So really my interest in this happened after joining The Guardian in 2003. And at that time, um, a lot of countries, about 20 countries, were pooling money to build the, the Large Hadron Collider. But it was taking an awful long time to build. Um, it was taking absolutely years. And for, at, at one time, um, that site was um, you know, just like the biggest civil engineering project in Europe. 
it was an enormous hole um, on the uh, French-Swiss border, um, and I got to go on a, a couple of trips out there to have a look at usually just these deep holes in the ground and talk to scientists about why they were digging them. And um, one thing that came up every time was, you know, we're going to look for this Higgs particle, this Higgs boson. And um, so you got chatting to people about what it was and uh, why it was actually worth all of this, you know, these these millions of taxpayers' uh, pounds, um, dollars, and so on, being used to look for this, you know, this particular particle. Why did anyone really care? And you know, scientists might say, well, it will help us understand the universe, which is an incredibly vague <laughs> and, 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 and kind of meaningless thing to say. Because you say, well, you know, people, you know, may, maybe it will probably won't, you know, or if it does, then don't we understand it kind of enough to go about our daily lives? And we know that there's a load of galaxies in it, and you know, how, to what length, to what level of detail do we need to understand it? You know, meaning the average taxpayer, what, what level do they care? Anyway, um, the backstory comes out that. You know, this particle was postulated by a guy who at the time I was told was a recluse uh, living in Edinburgh who basically just worked this out with pencil and paper. And um, he now really, you know, just uh, hid himself away in a, in a flat in Edinburgh. And just after going back and talking to enough people about this story, really for my own work here, I heard so many stories that were um, involved in either building these machines or the, the hunt for the particle or um, the people involved, um, all sorts of things going on with the various people involved and all kinds of backstabbing that had gone on in the lead-up work. And, and I thought this is, I, I found it fascinating. I found it genuinely fascinating. And I don't think um, anyone, well, I, I, okay, look, I don't, I don't think any first author writes a book to make money and, and I don't think any author probably writes a book to make money and I certainly didn't. I, I was comes back to something I was saying earlier where you kind of have this um, perhaps a sort of uh, a worry that you're not really doing anything important in your life or actually achieving anything, you know, showing it. You don't have anything to show for what you do every day. Um, I thought, well, you know, it'd be really, I was looking for a big project to take on uh, for something. Yes, I had something to show for myself. And mm -hmm. um, I really got to love this whole Higgs story. I, I, I really genuinely did. And I, I managed to, um, through a, another sort of lengthy process that I can go into if you wish, it's quite, quite fun, um, to get hold, you know, to, to, to get, in, get a few, in, good few interviews with Peter Higgs mm -hmm. um, and follow the story through. And I, it, it was really my desire to just pull all of this together because we were writing about the God particle every now and again, and so were other newspapers. And you just thought people don't know anything about this. You know, people read this and it's these stories, but they don't understand. You know, how would how would you know what was what that really meant and what the backstory was? And I just wanted to do a book that pulled it all together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, well, you've done a terrific job of it. And uh, let's begin by imagining that we don't know anything at all, because in my case, I really don't. Um, what is the problem that Peter Higgs and the other scientists were trying? To solve with this theory, and that is now uh, is now being tested, I guess, at these large um, at these very large colliders. What what is that issue here? What what are they trying to find out? What are they trying to prove? So there's um, there's a, a really interesting and kind of slightly unlikely problem with physics, and that is that um, if you break down all the kind of particles that we know about. And you get down to the the smallest particles that there are, so things like quarks and electrons that build up 
protons and neutrons, and protons and neutrons form the nuclei of atoms. Electrons spin around them. If you go down to these smallest particles, the, the theories say that they, they don't actually weigh anything. Now, so there you have a problem, um, because what Newton would have said is that if you add the masses of all these smallest, if you find the smallest particles there are, and you weigh them and you add them together, then an atom should weigh as much as, as its constituent particles. Mm -hmm. It's just not true. Um, I mean, my about a pound of my body weight, um, no, sorry, let me, let me take that back. Um, if, you, if you look at like a proton, okay, a proton is made up, a proton is a particle that sits inside uh, an atomic nucleus. It's made up of two, three quarks, two up quarks and one down, okay, but three quarks. If you add the masses of those three quarks together, all you get is 1% of the mass of the proton. So the bulk of the mass of, of, of the particles, of any composite particle, comes from somewhere else. And Einstein really hit on it when he was talking about um, the interchangeability of mass and energy in 1905, his famous, uh, tediously famous, E equals mc squared equation, um, mass and energy being interchangeable. And what Higgs did is Higgs said that um, there is a field that switched on in the very early, earliest seconds, earliest moments of the universe. And this field actually gives energy to these elementary particles. And so some particles feel this field uh, a lot, and they're very heavy. And some particles don't feel it at all, like light. It just moves straight through it, and light is massless. Um, and other particles feel it a little bit, and they have like an average weight. So basically, this is what Higgs was saying. There is a field that basically lurks in the vacuum. We can't see it, but the smallest particles there are are the answer, sorry, the smallest particles there are get mass by drawing energy from that field. Um, and so mass is always energy, and that is where they get the energy from. The, the mystery has been, where do they get their mass from? And this is the, the best idea yet, is that it's from the Higgs field, by interacting with the Higgs field. I mean, one analogy a guy at CERN used, uh, when I was asking him about it, he said, it happened to be snowing um, the night before I visited. And he said, look out the window. He said, imagine that you, you can see an infinite snow field. Um, and you think of um, a, 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 the snow field is essentially the Higgs field. And a, a photon will shoot through it like it's on skis. And then you'll get other particles that have snowshoes, and they kind of trudge quite quickly over it, but they're still going quite slowly. And then you get other particles that are essentially barefoot, and they have to trudge through up to their knees, and they can barely move at all. And what he meant was that this, this snow, if you like, is the Higgs field that's everywhere, and certain particles get bogged down in it. Others don't get bogged down in it at all. Um, and a snowflake would be the Higgs particle. So you have a field that you can actually... Um, think of as made up of particles itself, and mm -hmm. the Higgs particle is one of those. It's quite mind-bending stuff, but this is quite sort of standard um, quantum field theory physics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let, let me ask a couple of physics questions before we proceed to tell the uh, story of Peter Higgs and the rest of the people who um, theorized this and the other people who are looking for it. How do we know that quarks don't weigh anything? That's a, that's a really good question. I mean, the thing is, we, 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 they do weigh something. We know they do weigh something. But when you work through the, the, um, the maths, they don't weigh anything unless you have something in the equations like the Higgs mechanism. So mm -hmm. the problem was that 
Um, quarks definitely do weigh something, but it wasn't clear why and how. Mm-hmm. So, if, if that, so like, like, I mean, if you take an, the, the other elementary particle, like an electron, you know that that weighs something because you can, you, it's got a charge, an electric charge, so you can bend it and you can measure its mass, mm-hmm. or you can do like an oil drop experiment and you can work mm-hmm. out its mass. Um, but where its mass came from was the, was the tricky thing to understand um, because when you work through um, the equations of the standard model, which is basically a series of equations that, ex- that dis- describe the elementary particles, they don't have mass unless you have the Higgs field as well. Mm-hmm. And this is what was missing um, until Higgs came up with it in 64. Mm-hmm. But the Higgs field itself, the, 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 uh, the, the snow field, let's call it for a moment, uh, it, um, just to be clear, is, mm, it, is a, it is a proposition about what might exist. Yeah. Um, we have not observed it. And we'll come That's to that right. in a moment. Yes, I see. So it is, I, I'm always hesitant to use the word theory because um, I think a lot of people don't understand what it means, and I'm not sure I do, but it is a, uh, yeah, it is a, it is a presumption at this point. You're you right. It's postulated, yeah. I yes. guess. It would be one way of putting yeah, postulation, it. It may, yes. it, it may well be wrong. <clears throat> That's right. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Higgs. So people knew about this problem, right? They were, mm-hmm. they, they were working on it. How did Higgs uh, first come to formulate, and was Higgs the first one to formulate uh, an answer uh, to it? So what happened was in 1960, there's a guy um, who is now at Chicago, uh, University of Chicago, who won the Nobel Prize in 2008, if I remember rightly. Uh, his name is Yochiro Nambu, and he is um, an extraordinarily gifted theoretical physicist. Now, he was working on something completely different. He was working on theories of why and how superconductors work. So superconductors being these materials that when you cool them down below a particular temperature, a critical temperature, they suddenly lose all of their electrical resistance. So you can, you can run electricity through them without having any, any kind of losses. Um, and in the 1960s, people were um, wildly excited about these materials because um, they sort of saw them as being the answer to the energy um, crisis that was, that was ongoing. And in 1960, Yuchiro published this paper that was really interesting. He, something weird happens in superconductors that is kind of tangential to what most people sort of, you know, like superconductors for. There's a weird thing where inside a superconductor, if you shine a photon at a superconductor, when the photon moves into the superconductor, it suddenly gains mass. Hmm. Now, and that's, that, that's an odd thing. Um, the, the photon behaves as if it's heavy. Now, Nambu sort of knew about this. Um, it's a well-known effect, and he wrote a theoretical paper saying, well, what if there is some kind of field that works in a similar way to a superconductor that is actually responsible for giving mass to some of the particles in the universe? What if there was this kind of cosmic, we're living in this kind of cosmic superconductor, um, which is responsible for making these particles massive? Now, he kind of published a quite a speculative paper um, and it had obvious flaws in it. I mean, he knew, he knew that it had problems. Um, one of the problems being that um, if, if, there, if we did live in this cosmic superconductor, as he described it, um, the way he described it anyway, there would be a whole load of other particles that we just don't observe, that we should observe. So there, there were, he knew there were issues that, um, that made his idea wrong, but it was interesting, and he, you know, he wanted to get, it out, get the idea out there. Now... 
Peter Higgs saw this paper. Peter Higgs had recently moved up to the University of Edinburgh. He, he saw this paper and thought it looked really fascinating and started working on the idea that although Nambu had, there were some problems with Nambu's idea, he might be able to find a way around it. And in 1964, there was a bit of an argument broke out in a, couple of, in a journal um, whereby a couple of scientists from the University of Pennsylvania said, you know what, we think this particular theory might actually solve the problems with Nambu's idea, Nambu's, uh, Nambu's suggestion. Uh, someone else wrote in and said, that's rubbish, you've got it all wrong, this whole thing is doomed. And over one weekend that summer, Higgs realized that there was a loophole um, and he could solve the problem, essentially, which, which he then went and did. Now, that's a bit convoluted, but basically what Higgs managed to do was understand how um, an analog of superconductor theory could be used to explain the particle masses. Um, so he wrote this up um, on the Monday, uh, posted it off, it got published. Um, now, he then immediately pretty much set about writing a second paper, which really fleshed out the idea. Now, what was interesting was that, well, that second paper was rejected, and what was most fun about it, it was rejected by an editor at CERN, because CERN was where the sort of the editor was based and where the journal was essentially based. So CERN, who was spending all this money looking for this particle, actually <laughs> rejected the paper, which first described it, because what Higgs did in his second paper was um, actually say, look, if this field exists, then what you want to do is look for this particle because he was the one who pointed out that if the, heel, if the field exists, then so does this, um, this new kind of particle. And it's a very, it's a different kind of particle. Um, and that's what you should look for. It's kind of the smoking gun, to use the cliche. Mm -hmm. um, now, the interesting thing is Higgs was working in isolation. He was working um, on topics that other people in Edinburgh other people that cross the country in the UK and, and many parts of the US and other parts of the world weren't interested in. Um, he was, the, the methods he, were he was using were deemed to be old-fashioned by a lot of people. Now, so he didn't know anyone else working on this. He published, but it later turned out um, that he wasn't, um, he wasn't first, that uh, two other guys um, who had originally been at Cornell um, had moved to the Free University in Brussels, in Belgium. They had uh, somehow seen the same paper, well, they'd seen the same paper by Nambu, they had been working on their own theory, and they had published a week before. Um, there was also another group of people, three um, guys. Uh, one was Gerald Goralnik um, at Brown University, another guy is Dick Hagen, who's at Rochester. The third one was a guy called Tom Kibble at Imperial. Um, those three were working in London at the time. They produced their own paper. It was probably the biggest of the three, um, and theirs came out um, after Higgs's. So there were actually six people who came up with this idea mm. independently. Um, well, three groups came up with it independently within the space of a few months. Mm. Um, interestingly, Higgs is the only name that gets remembered um, in all of this um, for quite sort of random uh, reasons, but, but that is the way sort of life is sometimes. Um, but yeah, Higgs... Um, it was at least the first to name the particle, though, so he can kind of take credit for that, I think. Mm -hmm. Does, let me ask a quick question before you go on. Does Higgs call it the Higgs boson? He really doesn't like doing that. <laughs> he, he, he will say the particle some people call the Higgs boson, or he will call it another name which is valid. He will say, he'll call it the scalar boson. 
um, or the boson that bears my name. I've even heard him <laughs> heard him call it. Um, no, he's deeply he's, he's uncomfortable about that when he shouldn't be because he, although he wasn't the first to publish on this the idea of this field, he he was the first to point out in his paper that the um, this particle exists. So the particle, rightfully in my view, gets his name. Um, but the general idea came out, you know, so closely from so many people and, and almost certainly independently that it feels to me as if this was, uh, they all really deserve credit for mm -hmm. coming up with it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, you're doing great good work by, by, by having us remember them in addition to, to Higgs. I think that's important. Um, let, let's go on a little bit. So we have a theory and we have one observation that suggests that it's true, that is the observation involving uh, superconducting materials and photons in them, what is the next step? How do they begin to, they being physicists, begin to look for additional evidence that this might be uh, correct? So it's, it's a long time in coming because you, there are a lot of physicists who produce a lot of ideas that may or may not be right and there is no way of knowing. Um, because they're just theoretical ideas and you know, not, nature doesn't do everything that is possible. Um, so a few things happen. First of all, it's not clear when this theory is first written down which particles it gives mass to. Does it give mass to all of them? Does it give mass to just some of them? Um, and if so, which ones? Now, Higgs and all the others um, essentially go away and try and work out the answer to that question. Which are the particles? You know, how does this work? And they try and work through the maths um, to see, see what works. And none of them get anywhere. They all hit a very solid brick wall. They even start putting their graduate students on it because they give up themselves and they feel that <laughs> someone with more youth might, might have more energy to be able to get on with the problem. Certainly happened in a couple of cases anyway. No one makes any headway. Then what happens is, um, is Steven Weinberg, is, who's a Nobel Prize winning physicist, I'm sure you know, uh, who's you know, very probably one of, the most, you know, the, the, one of the most prominent physicists in the world alive at the moment. He was working on something, again independently, um, and suddenly realized, this is in 1967, he kind of had a penny drop, dropping moment when he realized that the, the, what he thought was fairly a whole bunch of useless equations he had been working on over the summer turned out to be doing something quite profound, but he just hadn't quite realized what. And what they did is they described how two forces of nature, those being electromagnetism and something called the weak force, which uh, goes to work in radioactive decay, he had worked out how those two forces were actually unified in the early universe. So physicists tend to think that when the universe was born, if you can use that word, the, all of the forces we know in nature being electromagnetism, uh, weak, the weak force, something called the strong force, which holds atomic nuclei together, and gravity, uh, people think they're all unified. They're all one super force, if you like. Um, but what Weinberg did is he, he'd done some maths which showed that these two of these forces were linked together. What was remarkable was that within the maths that he had done, was the, was the Higgs mechanism. Mm. So he'd essentially reinvented it. Mm -hmm. um, and he found that the only way that this process worked, that he could show that electromagnetism used to be married to the weak force, but no longer was in the modern day, only worked if the Higgs mechanism 
was um, alive and well and working in the universe. So Weinberg comes up with this idea. Um, that isn't proof. That's just a nice theory which uses someone else's maths. It, it's not good enough. Um, more work has to go on theoretically before um, it even looks like a solid theory. Um, and that was kind of achieved in 1971, where people basically locked down the mathematics of that um, of Steven Weinberg's uh, researchers said, look, this works. Um, I think the evidence, really indirect evidence that it was right, started really emerging in the 70s. Now, what Weinberg, and Weinberg was, um, it, Weinberg wasn't the only one who came up with this idea either. There was another guy called Abdus Salam um, who uh, won Nobel Prize for this work alongside Weinberg, um, who came up with it as well, I should mention him. Um, but the, the theory predicted um, two new particles. Um, well, there was one particle which was already thought to exist. Called the, they called it the W particle, the W zeson, W for weak. Um, and then uh, there was a second particle which Weinberg named the Z particle. And he named it the Z particle because he just really didn't want to know about any more particles. So he thought, <laughs> if I name it the Z, then there isn't anywhere else to go. Because you know what physicists are like, they have so many particles. And he just got tired. Yeah. Uh, so he said, look, this will be uh -huh. the Z at the end of the game. Anyway, so he, the, these particles were predicted by his theory. And what happened in 1973 was that CERN, uh, researchers at CERN, uh, discovered the first evidence for one of these particles, which was, which was completely new. Um, it's a chartless particle, and what it can do is produce something called neutral currents. If you think of electrical currents, they move around, obviously, by electrons taking charge from one place to another. A neutral current is basically a particle that doesn't have any charge moving from one place to another. And these kind of really subtle effects were picked up at CERN in 1973, um, and they were kind of the very first indirect evidence that Steven Weinberg and Abdus Salam's theory that, that, that married electromagnetism with a weak force was correct. Mm -hmm. Now, the, 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 the bigger evidence came, again, it's still indirect, but the bigger evidence came in the 1980s when CERN actually produced these W and Z particles, which were, which were predicted by Weinberg. Now, again, all of this is indirect. I mean, Weinberg's theory predicted these particles, and Weinberg's theory rested on the Higgs mechanism. I mean, the Higgs mechanism was really fundamental for Weinberg's theory to work. But you could still argue that, well, it's not proof. It isn't proof, because there may be something else going on that would allow this to happen, allow these particles to exist. So the, the race since then, since the 80s, the, the real hunt has been on to nail down and actually find the actual the Higgs particle itself, because at the end of the day, that is the proof you need. That mm -hmm. is what you need to say the Higgs particle really exists. Now, the one achingly kind of ironic thing about the Higgs mechanism and the Higgs, the whole theory behind it, the whole mathematics behind it is that of all of the things it does say, it doesn't tell you how heavy the Higgs particle should be. Mm -hmm. It could be the, it could, you know, it could explain where mass comes from, but it doesn't tell you how the mass of the Higgs particle itself. That is the one thing which has a big question mark in the in the sums. So that means that people just have to look for a particle that they don't know they don't know where how it will show up in their detectors very easily. Mm -hmm. Because to know how a particle is going to show up in a big machine one of these big particle colliders, you really need to know its mass. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you'll just, you'll, you just have to think, well, it can show up in this number of ways, 
depending on how heavy it is, and we need to look for all of them. Mm-hmm. And it becomes a bit of a needle in a haystack mm-hmm. problem. Mm-hmm. I see. Um, one of the things that I found very uh, interesting about your book, one thing that I learned that I did not know, is that there is a kind of division in physics between uh, theoreticians and experimentalists. I know some physicists, and all of them are theoretical. I don't, I don't think I've met an uh, experimental physicist. Are there two tracks in physics now? I mean, there are people that design experiments and then go to places like CERN and do them, and... On the other yeah, hand, and I, but I think it's, I mean, the, the impression I get, because, I mean, one thing in doing this book, I mean, I was, um, I, I wasn't coming to this as a, as, as a physicist. I was coming to it as a, as a journalist who was quite interested in, um, in, in digging out the stories that were going on and, and obviously understanding the physics. Um, and this involved um, me writing stuff and double-checking and sending all my chapters out to multiple people and all the rest of it. And, and the reason I'm saying that is that, you know, I, I'm... I, I'm not coming from a, a sort of a physicist background on this, but as I understand it, I mean, there are people do seem to fall into these two tracks, experimentalist or theoretical physicist. And certainly um, th- that seems to be the norm. But then th- there are definitely people who, and I was just interviewing one earlier today who was saying he was essentially an experimental physicist, but he would do theory where it were required. And so he, I think what he meant was that he, I think the theoretical physicists, as we think of them, do probably the really out there sort of string theory style, forward-looking, hardcore theory, Um, whereas to do even sort of very basic experimental physics, well, basic, to do modern experimental physics, you can't do it without with no knowledge of the theory. So I think there, there is kind of a, a, a middle ground where, where, where people do have both expertises. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. No, I found that very interesting. So let's talk a little bit about how uh, these physicists began to search for the uh, Higgs boson, and they do it and did it in something called a particle accelerator. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the history of particle accelerators and what they do and why they exist. So it, it's got a really interesting history, actually, whereby the the first accelerators kind of came about when people were trying to find ways of understanding the structure of the atom. And you can think of it back to Rutherford times, um, uh, back to Ernest Rutherford, where he was using um, a, an alpha emitter. So he would just use radium, a lump of radium that would produce alpha particles, small particles that would... would um, be released. They're basically radiation. Uh, these particles would fly out of this lump of radium. They would hit a target, say a, a gold foil, um, and he would look at, um, at what happened, at whether you know the particles passed through or whether they bounced back. And he had this this infamous experiment where particles bounced back, and he had, lo and behold, he had discovered the atomic nucleus. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you could almost think of those as um, the beginnings of people thinking we need to ram one particle into another to understand how particles work. Now, he was very early stages trying to understand what was going on in particular atoms. And he argued at the Royal Society after doing this experiment that we are going to need machines that can ram particles together at much higher energies because his experiment said there is an atomic nucleus, but you needed further experiments to say, well, what is the atomic nucleus made of? And it becomes, you know, an, a fabulous reduction um, in a way, and that you you're forever wanting to break things mm-hmm. into smaller and more smaller pieces to find out what is at the bottom, um, mm-hmm. and you get to the point where you think 
what, what, what even is a particle such as a quark? What, what, you know, it, what is a particle that is so small that it fits you know, within a proton? Um, it's essentially a lump of energy, but it, it, sort of, it, it becomes difficult conceptually to even understand what that is. But anyway, uh, the Rutherford was absolutely right, and people started building accelerators all over the world, and certainly in places like Cambridge over here, where people started off with very, very linear accelerators, where they essentially took things like um, charged particles, like electrons, and they would accelerate them down pipes just using um, electrodes, just using high voltages, and they would hurtle electrodes along and uh, electrons along, sorry, um, or other charged particles, ram them into a material at the end, and look for look for what came off. Um, have a user detector to try and see if other particles came off, if they could break atoms apart. Um, and if they could learn something about what the ultimate constituents of matter were, if you like. Mm -hmm. Now, things shifted a little, um, well, quite um, sort of uh, the, the essence of what a collider was for shifted um, later on when, first of all, you can think of a collider as just a means of breaking something up. It was mm -hmm. just about breaking atoms up, seeing what they're made of. But then you get to the stage where you're looking for particles which um, you need uh, they're not the particles you're looking for aren't within the atom they are particles that you just you've predicted they might exist you might know how heavy they should be and thanks to Einstein you can say well if you can create a certain amount of energy in a small place then that particle might pop into existence because essentially the particle condenses out of the energy mm -hmm. so this is what happens in a particle accelerator now is that you you hurtle particles around and around. Um, what happens in the Large Hadron Collider at CERN is that you, you fire uh, protons in one direction and protons in another direction and you whip both of them up to nearly the speed of light and then at four places around the instrument you cross over the beams and what happens there is these particles slam together head-on um, or sometimes they glance off each other but you have particle collisions there but it's the energy produced in the collisions that are producing, that then go on to produce these particles. So you're no longer looking at trying to break down what's inside a proton. We know what's inside a proton. You're actually producing a big load of energy that then, um, as it kind of um, cools, if you like, it condenses into a whole range of other particles. So this is a little, bit, this is a little bit like a flash, a, a flash bulb. That's yeah. a bad analogy, I yeah. suppose. But yeah, it's like a flash well, bulb. So, so the idea is that um, you... You generate the energy, and then your particle appears. And, and by, by surrounding these kind of these tiny um, orchestrated acts of violence, by surrounding them with big detectors, you can think, you can see what kind of particles are hitting your detector. You can say, okay, that time we produced this particle, that particle, and the other particle, um, and you can tell which ones, which particles you produce by the kind of tracks they leave in your detector. So, do they? Um, do they dump a load of energy? Do they, you know, how much energy do they have? How fast are they moving? What, what um, trajectory do they take? Things mm -hmm. like that. Um, now, the tricky thing with the Higgs particle is that it's incredibly unstable. So we don't know what mass it is. If you produce it, it doesn't hang around. It immediately decays into other particles. Um, and the problem being that the particles it tends to decay into, the particles it will decay into, are very normal, boring particles that we know about already that you produce all the time in a, in a particle accelerator. So that leaves you with a bit of a problem because you're, 
you're crashing particles together, you're looking for a Higgs boson among them that you can't see directly. So all you have to do is look for almost an excess bit of junk that's produced. It's like <laughs> you, 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 it, there's nothing really easy about it because all of the normal sort of subatomic detritus that you'll be producing, all of the other particles that, that shower out of your collision are, are going to be made up of the same kinds of fragments of matter that the Higgs particle decays into. Uh -huh. So all you can do is say, well, what would we normally expect to see if the Higgs particle wasn't there? And you say, well, we'd expect to see this quark and that quark and however many of them. And then you say, well, how many would we expect to see if the Higgs boson was there as well and that had decayed into these? Then you say, oh, well, it would actually be a few more of these. But the differences are so subtle and quantum mechanics being what it is, that these things don't happen reliably every time. It's, it's, it, it, there is an inherent uncertainty in there that you have to run these experiments for years and you have to look at a heck of a lot of data to see a slight, you know, uh, an excess, what is what they call it, an excess, which means this is where some extra subatomic material is coming from a Higgs boson. Um, so it's not as, as the, the, my newspaper editors here thought, was that as soon as you switched on the LHC, they were thinking of it as in terms of like a school experiment or an experiment that you do at university where you do the experiment and the experiment gives you the answer and you go home and write it up. Um, these machines don't work like that. You have to run them for years and you mm -hmm. have to collect data for years and you then have to process it with incredibly complicated computer algorithms to sift out these these you know, these tiny, these few occasions where you've produced something that you want to find um, and to sift it out from the noise of the background. There's such a tiny signal um, with such a huge background. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's an enormous problem. Mm -hmm. So after Higgs proposed the theory and um, after uh, Weinberg had proposed the related theory and it had been um, confirmed, so to say, by the discovery of these two particles, uh, what is the next step? What did they decide to do then in order to search for the uh, right. Higgs boson? Right. Where, where, and where did they do it? Because part of your story is the story of these competing That's um, right. uh, super colliders. Yeah, I think the second half of the book is where things get very sort of into the experimental and the, the, real, the real kind of physical hump for this, this, this particle. And um, so things really started off at CERN again um, with their, the predecessor of the Large Hadron Collider. It was called the Large Electron Positron Collider. Um, now, it was a similar size machine. It, it, it operated at far lower energy, um, but it started looking in earnest um, around from 1990 onwards, really. But um, it, it was looking, yeah, I'd say through the 1990s, it was looking for the, for the Higgs particle. And it... it, it Again, as I was just saying, you have to run these machines a long time, so they weren't expecting to find it, find it anytime soon. Now, what was interesting was because of um, CERN's successes and because of another discovery in Germany of another particle called the gluon, there was um, an infamous um, New York Times editorial in 1983 entitled, um, what was it, something like Europe 3 US 0. Uh, U.S. not even not even Z0. Europe 3, U.S. not even Z0. Z0 referring to this neutral particle. Yeah. Um, and it was probably, um, I don't know how I feel about it actually, but it, it, it was published probably intentionally 
during the week when a committee in the US was meeting to decide on the future of US particle physics, and the sentiment of the editorial was that the US is losing its leading edge on particle physics. The Europeans have made some three key discoveries in the last few years. Um, the US has to pull its finger out and has to, it, it asked for earnest revenge. It said there needs to be, an, you know, earnest revenge. So this was essentially the, the, the New York Times kind of editorializing and asking for its politicians to back um, US particle physics. And it was a, the, 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 the to, to be fair, the committee certainly listened because they, they came up with this uh, a particle collider, which had actually been, there's another story behind this I won't go into, but this, this particle collider had actually been worked on under another name to kind of try and improve US-Russian relations under a very different name um, at the earlier days of the Cold War. Um, but th th those, those old designs were essentially polished off and uh, modernized, and, and it became the blueprints for the superconducting supercollider. And this was going to be an absolute monster of a machine. And it, it, it probably was biting off more than, than any Congress could chew, I suspect, because it was something, it was, it was more than 50 miles in circumference. It's enormous. And it, the, the problem perhaps wasn't so much the size, it was the way the budgets just kept on going up and up and up. And it started off, people started thinking they could do it for a few billion, and then it became more than 10 billion. And people wondered, when will this stop? And there were other priorities, and, and it, it, it ended up not happening. But all the while, um, the, the Europe was looking for, CERN was looking for the Higgs boson. The SSC was due to be built, and actually people started building it. They, they bored tunnels, um, a few miles of tunnels. They spent some of the billions of dollars that were due to produce this machine. And let's be clear, this machine was designed to find the Higgs particle. It would, would have done it by now. It would have done it in, um, in the 90s, I'm sure, um, had it, had it been, been built in time. Um, it would also have completely, it would have made the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, obsolete before it was built. Um, it would have been an extraordinary thing, and it probably would have made the U.S. the, the necessary center for particle physics because no one else really could have competed. You would have had to have gone to the, to, to the U.S. to do that kind of work because it would have been an absolute monster of a machine. It was probably too ambitious because it, it did end up being cut because of the, just the sheer, the, the sheer scale. didn't fit with other political priorities, I guess. Um, but that being cancelled, it didn't mean that the U.S. was out of the race because another, another particle accelerator had taken up the hunt, really, um, and really did start pushing um, to look for the Higgs particle from about 2000 onwards. So although it was working really on other things or didn't really have much hope of finding the Higgs particle, the, the, um, the particle accelerator I'm talking about called the Tevatron based at Fermilab near Chicago, really started upping its game in the 90s, um, sorry, the, from 2000 onwards, and became a real contender um, to, to look for the Higgs. And so what's been playing out since 2000 really has been this um, alternating of the baton between, in, in the race. I mean, uh, throughout the 90s, CERN was definitely the premier place to look for the Higgs from um, from 2000 until about 2010, it was the Tevatron. Now it's quite finely balanced because 
We have the Large Hadron Collider in Europe, which is very much looking for the Higgs, and it's more powerful, but the Tevatron is still going very well. It's got a lot more, um, it's, it's been running for a long time, so people understand it very well. It's done a lot of collisions already, and it may well run for a few more years and could still uh, pip the LHC to the post on this one. So it could still absolutely win that race. But that was a, a kind of a, uh, just a toing and froing of who was in the lead over the last couple of decades. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's too bad about the superconducting super collider. I, I hope that they revisit it. I just uh, drove by with my wife and kids. I drove by the, um, the Tevatron, and you can't see anything. <laughs> so, yeah, nothing. It's so, on the ground. Yeah, you can't say a damn thing. Uh, so anyway, where do we stand now? I mean, uh, are we any closer? Have there been any hints that we are going to discover the the, the Higgs party or a particle? Are people are people saying that it's 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 a it's a fiction or or what is the what is, what do the right thinking people say about it now? So I mean, before doing that one, I mean, the, the, the in, there was an extraordinary. Um, situation in, in the year 2000 when at CERN, um, just, as, just before they were closing the machine down, the large electron positron collider LEP, um, just before they were closing that down to make way for the LHC, they essentially had to strip one collider out to fit the new one. They started seeing very good signals for the Higgs mm. and, um, and a, a number of experiments came up and said, look, we think, we, we think we've seen it. Um, but as is the case with these things, you have to be very sure. You have to run your experiments for a long time to verify and, and all the rest of it. And there wasn't time to do that because to delay the LHC would have meant um, cost implications for that project itself. Um, and what came out later was that CERN was already had a big hole in its budgets, which hadn't uh, for some reason been made public um, at that time. And so it, people... Some people who were at CERN in 2000 believe that they have actually seen it and that they just missed their chance, that they could have had this a decade ago, but they blew it because they didn't agree to run on just for a few, say, six months more, a bit longer, to try and nail it. Now, where we are now is that the Large Hadron Collider in CERN is up and running, but it's still um, it's only running at half power because um, of some serious technical problems they had. They've only been able to run the machine at half of the power it's intended to run at. Um, moreover, it is due to close down for a year in 2012 um, for a load of maintenance work that will actually make it capable to run safely um, at its full energy um, from sort of 2013 onwards. Now, <laughs> what's interesting is that the guys um, at the Tevatron who are still going after the Higgs particle themselves. They really want one last hurrah before their machine closes down. Mm -hmm. It was due to close down next year, or this year, sorry, it's due to close down this year. Um, but next, uh, in February, there is due to be a decision um, from Department of Energy that may, dis that may govern whether that particle collider, the Tevatron, can keep running for three more years. And the physicists there have made a really good case that if it does run for three more years, they might be able to get the Higgs. Mm -hmm. Now, it's interesting because you think, okay, Fermilab is going to is, is doing its utmost to pull out all the stops to find the Higgs in the next three years. The LHC people um, have since started thinking, well, you know what? Maybe we won't shut down in 2012. Maybe we can find the Higgs Higgs at half energy. So they're now talking about just running all the way through 
um, keeping it at, at half energy and trying to get it because it, whatever happens in this story, it seems that it it always goes down to the wire, mm-hmm. and that so they are now just sort of really sort of shifting their positions to try and make sure that each each lab keeps the edge mm-hmm. because it it has become the sort of the prime particle and and the next one they have to find because um, it will be such a big prize to get it. Um, you can see why both of those labs want it dearly. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the moment, it's really hard to tell who'll get it. I mean, mm-hmm. the LHC scientists, some of them you talk to, are pretty confident that they're the ones who'll get it. But that's because, you know, they think that the Tevatron won't be extended or that it won't, um, if it runs, it won't still won't have enough energy. But others will say, well, you know what, you know, they might get lucky. And the, the honest answer is people don't know which mm-hmm. lab will find it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll probably have to wait three years to find out, sadly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to, um, as soon as I'm, I'm off the air with you, I'm going to write my congressman because as an American, I just don't think I can take being beaten again by people in Switzerland. That just is, <laughs> that's upsetting to me. I, it just, I, with no, no offense intended to Swiss There are people, actually an but, awful lot of Americans. Yeah, I'm sure there are. Now, but, you know, which I've, is a problem, though. Bear in mind, because, yeah, right. they, you know, why are they at CERN? They're at CERN because yeah. there isn't anywhere, um, you know, of, 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 uh, of the same, you know, energy yeah. in the U.S. No, I, I, I understand, and that's too bad. So let's get, let's get back on that horse, America. <laughs> we'll give Ian something else to write about. Uh, so we've been talking to Ian Sample about his terrific new book, Massive, the missing particle that sparked the greatest hunt in science. Ian, I want to thank you for being on the show today, and I'd like to close the interview with our traditional final question, and that is, what are you working on now? Do you have another book? Do you know what? I've spent, since, since finishing Massive, I've spent my time enjoying my life again because I spent so much time sat in a study and I don't know if you know a part of London called Brixton it's yeah, not very nice it's known for its riots I mean they were a while ago but it's I only not know it from a clash nice. song to be honest with you right Sorry. right it's and, and I I had a miserable time I have to say I mean intellectually it was wonderful but but it was like being um, a hermit and I've been going out again and enjoying myself and lazing around and wasting time, which yeah. has been wonderful. But um, I've kind of done that for a, uh, probably a year now or six months now. And I'm, I've, I've come up with some ideas for another book, but um, they kind of follow this ballistic, ballistic trajectory. Like at three o'clock in the morning, I'll have an idea and then I'll be thinking about it on the way to work and it'll sound really good. And then by about two o'clock in the afternoon, I've noticed some fatal flaws in it yeah. and the whole thing crashes and burns. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've gone through quite a few ideas that I, I've crossed off, yeah. um, but I'm, I'm still looking. Yeah. I've got a computer full of those ideas. Yeah, so, yeah, it used to be a drawer, but the drawer wasn't large enough. So I do you ever do you ever worry that you're being too harsh on your own ideas? Yeah, um, not really. No, mine just aren't that good. I think yours are better. <laughs> I, truly, it's the case. But anyway, I want to say, Ian, thanks very much for being on the show. It's really a terrific book. It's called Massive: The Missing Particle That Sparked the Greatest Hunt in Science. I urge you to go to your local bookstore and buy it. So, Ian, thanks again for being on the show. Thank you. Okay, take care. Bye bye. You've been listening to an interview with Ian Sample about his new book, Massive, The Missing Particle That Sparked the Greatest Hunt in Science. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.